Hey folks, my name's Andy Sido. I'm a singer, songwriter, performer, uh, and producer living in Denver, Colorado. My guest this week is Austin, Texas-based recording artist Shane Smith of Shane Smith and the Saints. Welcome to Middle Class Rockstar. Welcome back. Happy 2023. I hope your year's off to a great start. Um, I had a really cool conversation with Shane Smith. We we talked about a lot of things, from how he first got into music to tennis um, to you know what sets his band apart in terms of in terms of success, um, uh, childhood. I mean, we just we talked about all sorts of things. So it it was a wonderful conversation, and um, it was really cool of him to take the time to chat with me. I first met Shane. I think either 2017 or 2018, my band, uh, modestly titled Andy Sido, has had the pleasure of opening for them a few times. Um, we did two or three shows at the Bluebird, um, 2017 through 2019 or something like that. And then we just recently supported them again at the Ogden Theater in Denver on December 1st, just a, uh, about a month or so ago, um, or a couple months ago when this episode comes out. Anyway, he's got a great fan base, um, and and the band kicks ass, and they're doing really well right now. And it's, you know, it's so, it takes hard work, and you have to be really good, and you have to be both of those things for a long time to, to have success in the music industry. And um, Shane Smith uh, and the Saints are certainly having success right now, and it's, it's cool to see uh, friends do well. So, um yeah, very, very happy for him and for the band. One of my favorite memories of of a show at, at a Denver theater was, I think the very first time we opened for them, Shane, at the beginning of the night, uh, after our sound check, he came up and said, hey, do you want to come sit in with us at the end of the night? We're going to do the wait by the band. You can come up, sing a verse, play whatever. Um, but, you know, it'd be cool if you want to come up and, and jam with us on the encore. And, and I said, well, sure, yeah, that sounds great. But I... I've been asked to do this before by by headliners at, at shows, and it doesn't always happen. You know, it just uh, it, it's and, and it's no big deal. It's just wherever the night, um, it's wherever the night takes you, and however things go. But we finished our set, and I had a couple drinks, and a couple people bought me drinks, and I was just hanging out in the audience, having a great time at the show, and then the band goes off stage, and everyone starts yelling for the encore, and. I went, oh, yeah, that's going to happen. I had totally kind of forgotten about it. And, um, you know, all of a sudden, Shane comes back out on stage, introduces me up on stage, and, and I'm, you know, slightly intoxicated. And uh, a friend showed me a video of it that he took uh, a few weeks back, and it was, it was pretty hilarious. But anyway, I want to jump right into the show because it's a great conversation. Quick thanks to our sponsor, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratormusic.com. And um, I'm opening the podcast up to a couple new sponsors finally, so if you're interested in that, shoot me an email, middleclassrockstar at gmail.com, and we can chat about that. Also, uh, if you'd like to support this podcast in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash andysiddo, S-Y-D-O-W. Um, I sometimes put episodes up early, show some additional content, um, I had Mickey Raphael on a few months ago, who's been Willie Nelson's harmonica player for uh, for the whole the whole time uh, that that Willie's been doing his thing. And aside from the interview that got published, he talked harmonica for a while, and uh, that that's up on there. I also um, am a recording artist myself, uh, just going by my name, Andy Sido, and I put up songs early, uh, talk about tour dates early and stuff like that. So. Uh, if you'd like to join my Patreon community, you can do for uh, you can do that. Excuse me for as little as three dollars a month, and it's greatly appreciated. If you'd like to support this podcast in a non-monetary way, give it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It just takes a second, and it's a huge help. All right, let's jump in my conversation with Shane Smith. Shane, how's it going? Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Uh, it's it's good to see you again. I, it was a lot of fun getting to catch up over in Denver not too long ago. So thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And are, you're back home now, yeah? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're in Austin and, uh, my wife and I, uh, got out of town, uh, earlier this week. I've been out of town the last like four days or so, just trying to kind of wind down. Uh, we finished our touring for the year. And, uh, so anyways, went out to West Texas and, uh, just kind of chilled out. Just got Is back. That- is that a typical thing for you that you wind down after after a bunch of shows where you just want to go somewhere and hang out for a little bit? Uh, it's something that I would definitely like to do more often, but uh, we, you know, I feel like there's always something else. You know, if I'm getting off the road, we immediately have to go take care of X, Y, and Z at the house, or we have some plans with our friends. Uh, uh, my wife keeps our social calendar pretty filled up uh, just because of the <laughs> – limited amount of time I get with a lot of our friends. She's always filling in the little available dates, uh, to make up for those, uh, missed ones. So. And she tours with you as well, right? No, I mean, she, she'll come out on the road some, um, but, uh, a lot more this, this year actually than, than in the past. And, uh, we did that whiskey Myers tour, which was like, you know, from April to pretty much like October ish. And, um, and she would fly in and out a lot. I was flying home like all the time. And uh, anyway, so, you know, she was on the road a, a decent amount, I would say, this year. Yeah. Well, that's that's great to be able to, to bring her out with you. Um, and so, yeah, we met in, in Denver. I've opened for you a couple of times at the Bluebird and then, and then at the Ogden just earlier this month. And uh, I know you've done these shows before where you're opening for a national act at a, at a theater. And, you know, you've got you've got a short set, so you got to bring it and people are there to see somebody else. So you got to bring it. And, uh, you know, usually the way those work is like when you start, it's like half full. And then by the time your set ends before the yeah. headliner comes on, it's packed. Well, at the Ogden, the doors were at eight. We played at nine and it was as full at eight fifteen as it was at the end of the night. I mean, right. that that's going to feel good for you, right? Going from a 500 cap room to a 1500 cap room and just bang, it's, it's packed in there. Yeah, man, it felt incredible. I remember the first time we got to play Ogden theater was years and years ago, uh, opening for turnpike troubadours. And it was the first time they sold it out, I think. And, uh, it's just, it's such a gorgeous theater. I mean, I, I feel like it doesn't necessarily get the credit that it deserves. Cause it's like, uh, I mean, I'm sure in Denver you hear about it a lot, but, uh, I feel like it should be one of those venues that, you know, everybody knows about and talks about and tries to get to, you know, but, uh, it's, it's an awesome place. It felt amazing, you know, having it sold out and, and, uh, you're right, dude, they were, they were packed in there and they were, about it <laughs> they yeah. were ready for it yeah yeah it is that cool. how is that how it is every night now pretty much um it i would say it's it just depends uh the success that we've had this last year is still new to us you know and and it's still something we're we're kind of still soaking it in and just waiting for for the floor to fall out i've said that mentioned multiple <laughs> times in other interviews but it's kind of yeah. like that imposter imposter syndrome thing and where you just feel like oh man there's no way this can uh i I don't know it's it's uh we just we've gone a long time without any of this and so you can't help but almost feel like oh there's no way this is real like yeah you know this is gonna fall through at any point in time but it's (laughs) it's been really cool lately a lot of the fans a lot of the crowds have been just super stoked and just all about it we just ended the year of touring uh I think I mentioned this to you in Denver, but we do these ugly sweater shows. Like it's a saints ugly Christmas. And this is like the yeah. sixth or seventh year we've done it in a row. And it's awesome. I mean, all of, all of our fans are dressed up and, you know, Christmas outfits and ugly Christmas sweaters. And we're all dressed up like buffoons as well. And yeah. uh, it just like, it's, it's super fun. They're all in Texas. And so it's like a kind of a homecoming for us. Uh, this year we did, uh, Austin, uh, Arlington, San Antonio and Houston and Arlington's like in between Dallas and Tyler. It's like the Dallas Fort Worth er yeah. I'm sorry, in between Dallas and Fort Worth. Yeah. Right, and, right, right. um, so anyways, uh, those were a big, that was really cool for me. Kind of like going off of the Denver show. It was like seeing these fans that are just packing, just packing these places out. 
Yeah. And that's kind of a first, I feel like, for us. Like, we've had packed venues, but we've had to work really hard to pack them. And, like, whereas on the, these, it was like, you know, you like that that Ogden one was like, what, 1600 or 1650 or something like that capacity. Yeah. Dude, the, the one we did in Arlington was like 3,800 capacity, and it was within a few hundred tickets of sellout. Wow. And they were they were ready to go. I mean, like the opener, same deal. Like when the opener went on, uh, I mean, it's this band called Goodbye June that we're good buddies with out of yeah. uh, Tennessee. And uh, I mean, they were just all about it and uh, super high energy, really loud. And, um, and so, yeah, it's exciting, man. I wouldn't say it's been like that for a long time, but it's been like that lately. So hopefully it just holds on. Well, in you know, thinking about th- it's it's so hard to to get um, up to that level. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a lot of hard work and the product has to be great consistently. And even then, it's tough to break through the noise. I mean, what do you think are the intangibles of Shane Smith and the Saints that have gotten you guys? Hey, we're not just doing the bars anymore. We're up doing these big venues and in uh, packing them. Is there something that you would credit that too that sets you apart from other groups man i just think that we've we've been super fortunate i think in a lot of ways that like there's certain things that have worked out for us there's tons of stuff that has not worked out for us but one thing that really worked out for us is you know my wife early early on when we were still playing sixth street was pushing me really hard to like you know, you guys need to do more harmonies. Like, you know, you could do so much with your harmonies and you got a couple good singers and, um, and it was a di- different band members at that time. Uh, several of them were, um, again, this is like 12, 13 years ago or something. Uh, and, right. um, but I really started pushing that pretty hard, like on, on, uh, with her advice and, and the guys were, you know, for the most part down and, um, and so we started pushing the harmony thing and we never could quite get it. And we started to get it as like a three part. And then, um, we needed a new, uh, bass player. And so we were trying out chase our current bass player up in the, uh, like, you know, DFW area one day and we were doing a rehearsal and, uh, we started singing this song that had a really strong harmony part. And he, we put a mic on him just for the sake of like, uh, you know, if he wanted to talk through the PA or whatever, so we could all hear each other better. And we were like in, in a garage essentially or something, Yeah. but he had a mic in front of him and, uh, out of nowhere, we start singing the song and he, we just start hearing this like low bass frequency, like harmony going on. And we were like, what was that? We kind of stopped <laughs> yeah. and we're like, what was that? And. He was like, oh, shoot, my bad, dude. I'm sorry. Like, I, did, I, I won't sing on it. Like, I was just messing around, uh, just, like, doing some baritone harmonies. And uh, we were like, no, no, no. Like, it was awesome. That sounded yeah. awesome. Like, let's yeah. keep doing that. And so it went from a three-part harmony to a four-part at that point, which is, you know, arguably the strongest uh, harmony in our uh in our in our crew you know his chase is like low baritone but he also will do like falsetto stuff and other songs wow and i feel like that was like an early break quote unquote that was like an early like it worked out right then right and yep. um and i think it helped to set us apart from other bands because we already had the three-part thing down pretty solid and chase is such a talented musician that he immediately just stepped in and he knew exactly where to go and um, uh, and where to fit his harmonies in with, with the other three. And, uh, and so immediately like our sound just kind of, you know, it went from being like a, a pretty rowdy folk rock band that would be willing to do all kinds of just off the wall improv stuff on stage. You know, we were more or less almost like a jam band early in the early days, you know? And, uh, and then, uh, it went from that to like all of a sudden, it's that plus this really cool uh, four-part harmony thing that nobody was doing at the time. And after, it's funny because within about three years of us doing that, like I can name all these other bands that we play shows with that have now done it. You know, they've all yeah. started doing it as well. And uh, 
it's just it's funny to see because it definitely like had an influence on uh, on that red dirt scene and a lot yes. of the bands that kind of go in and out of that scene like everyone all of a sudden started trying to do four-part harmonies and three-part harmonies so that i feel like was a big break that kind of set us apart early on and we continued to just try to like you know sharpen that knife i guess over time um but then you mix that with 10 years or so of pretty pretty intense touring like not staying down here in texas and oklahoma but getting out and when a lot of the bands surrounding us down here, we're not doing that. Right. And so I feel like that, that set us apart as well because we were willing to go to Manhattan in a shitty RV and, and, and deal with what you have to deal with to get your gear through Holland tunnel. And, you know, yeah. it, we, we dealt with all that stuff. Whereas a ton of these other bands weren't doing that. And, and we would, consistently go up to new york in the northeast and in the southeast we can all the time would be going to the pacific northwest and and then you know so you've got that for like 10 years almost of doing that yeah. probably eight years and then and, and at the start of this by the way is that i mean are you guys just playing wherever you can play when when you first start leaving the region yeah i mean pretty much like we would be doing um smaller bars and and it, we had an agent at that time at, with a, a smaller agency called red 11 yeah that they helped us out so much early on and, and helped us uh just get out there and, and tour our butts off and um and so you mix eight eight to ten years of doing that with the harmony thing with all the relationships you build over time we, you know, shaking hands with people at the merch booth every single night. Like I never missed a night, like trying yeah. to give back to the fans and trying to like, just be present with all of that. And then yeah. you also, you also combine all of that time and, and the, you know, whatever you combine all of that with this last year or so with the Yellowstone stuff. And we finally, we got a placement on a TV show yeah for our music for the first time ever and it's like the most watched tv show in north america and and so it's like i've described it as like it's not like all of a sudden we were like we had nobody and then we had a bunch of people listen to us it's like right if you can imagine like five hundred thousand dots that we had planted throughout the country just immediately it was like they all got connected. Like it was yeah. all of a sudden, like all these people watching that show were like, Oh my God, I saw them in this bar on a Tuesday in St. Louis or, I, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, we hung out and they crashed in my garage one time in, in Kansas, like yeah. eight years ago or like whatever. Right. Because we were that band. I mean, we wouldn't like just sleep on people's couches and stuff like all the right. time. We were like never hardly in hotel rooms and uh, we would always have a friend somewhere and we would just crash. And, and that makes for like a pretty unique story, you know, at the end of the day and, and, um, and definitely kind of had that scrapper mentality, but we were also like, we were friends with a ton of like so many of these people from doing it for so long. Yeah. And so that's a super long-winded answer to your initial question, but that no, is I kind love of the it. way I see it. That's the way I see it working, right? Is like yeah. there's these random little circumstances, a ton of grit, a ton of hard work, decent music, <laughs> you know, like and, great and music, it's, and, and, it's, and it's kind of over time, like it's clicked. It seems, at least, I don't know how long it will last. Like I said, it's like. There's definitely that imposter syndrome thing, but I hope that I hope that it's for good, and I hope that it w continues to build from here. Well, it it goes back to the whole thing of you know people like oh they blew up out of nowhere. You hear that about bands all the time, yeah. and if you look into yeah. their backstory, that's almost never the case. No, um, they're out no. doing the thing, and and an opportunity like Yellowstone doesn't come to a band who's sitting in the garage. Uh, in playing nowhere else. I mean, it comes to a band that's been out earning it and roughing it for uh, a decade, which is which is cool to see. And speaking of that placement too, um, you know, there's different kinds of placements, right? There's library music where you might write a beat and someone pays $300 to use it. Uh, there's getting your song played in the background 
uh, of a bar scene or whatever. And then you guys are, I mean, it was the best kind of placement. You actually yeah. played on the show. Your band was on stage. Um, that's really neat to, cause every, you, it was advertising for the band. It wasn't, Hey, catch us in the background at that bar during the, the kissing scene. It's we're playing on the show. Right. Well, but, but also that was the second time we got an opportunity with, with Yellowstone. Technically a year ago, we, uh, we were on an episode and Taylor Sheridan named the episode after our song. All I see is you. Right. And uh, it shows the character Jimmy going down to the four sixes ranch and uh, to work. And there's like a, a love story plot going on there where he's, you know, he and his girl are, are splitting in that scene kind of as he goes away. And they gave us a huge feature on that episode for all I see is you, which is, you know, it's been like, the most popular song for us for a while. And yeah. uh, that was the one though. Like that was the one when it all like clicked. And then this most recent one, it's just another example of that. Just it's, it helped us a, a shit ton. I mean, don't like it helped a, a massive amount, but it was that first one. I feel like that really made stuff kind of blow up, you know, yeah. and, and connect all those dots initially. And now it's just, it's just helping more and more with, uh, with like this most recent one and and uh we're just dude we're so thankful man i like i think back on it it's like i still i just like can't believe that we're that we're getting those opportunities right now because i just never in my wildest dreams thought it would be a a, a thing you know yeah yeah uh, you're talking about uh, a minute ago you're talking about going in and out of the red dirt um, scene and, and, and that kind of music. Um, and you have done a bunch of, you've covered a ton of different genres of music. And, and I think the harmonies is part of that, but, um, you know, going back in your catalog, I don't know if it was 2009, 2010, you put out just a solo record. Um, all, I'll see the miles or something. It's, and it's, uh, it's hard to find now, but it's, it's, it's a solo record. It's before the saints. Right. And yeah. that has elements of country, but it also has some you know, Springsteen greetings from Ashbury park vibes too, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and Springsteen was influenced. And we wrote that record by Dylan and Woody Guthrie. Right. And there's a, that's not a far line to draw from Woody Guthrie to Bob Childers, who people say is, uh, you know, is the father of, of red dirt country. But then you've done all this stuff since, uh, indie rock and roll, uh, you know, what you just put out fire in the ocean has elements of stadium rock and you too. So yeah. you kind of covered all these, a lot of different ground genre wise. Um, yeah. but I, I notice when I hear people talk about you, they bring you're branded as red dirt country. Is that something that you did intentionally when you were starting out or did that just sort of happen from people listening to you? I think we've, we've kind of, a, like our sound has changed over time a lot, uh, organically just because of the different music that we've listened to over time. Like early on, I was listening to a lot of, of like the red dirt country, but I was listening to a, a ton of like, when you talk about the I'll see the miles album, like that's way, you know, that's like when I was in high school, I, I was writing those songs and yeah. recorded that as a freshman in college or maybe a sophomore or something. But, um, uh, Regardless, I was listening to a lot of singer-songwriters at that time, and uh, like Adam Carroll, I reference these guys all the time, but it's the truth. Like uh, I was listening to a ton of like Adam Carroll, uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard, a lot of him, um, Hayes Carl, Ryan Bingham was just coming out with his, um, like he had a uh, he had an album called Wishbone Saloon that. I don't know if you can find anywhere online these days, but uh, it was like a almost looked like a demo tape or something like an old school CD. And I, there was like a burnt copy of it that I somehow got a hold of from someone at our college dorm. And so loved that music as well. And so that's what that, you know, that first CD sounds like a high school kid trying to figure out songwriting and figure out like, writing chord progressions and things without having a clue what I'm doing, you know, but yeah. it's also that there's like genuineness to it. That's really cool. And, uh, and my voice is so different. It was like, it wasn't damaged yet. You know, <laughs> it's like, sounded like a kid, you know? And, um, and so then you fast forward a couple of years 
listening to a lot more of like the red dirt stuff, listening to a lot of, uh, what like the Braun brothers were putting out like reckless Kelly, Mickey and the motor cars, Randy Rogers, um, a, a lot of those folks. Um, and, and I think instinctively you start kind of writing in the path of the stuff you're listening to in a way, like subconsciously, you know? And, uh, and so then the next album, it just expanded a little more. And then Hail Mary, it's expanded a little more. It's like started to lean more and more rock, I feel like, and more indie rock. Because, you know, while I love all that music, I, I also, I love Kings of Leon. I love yeah. uh, uh, U2. I, I love Mumford & Sons. I love local right. natives. Like there's so many of these incredible bands. Uh that I listen to all the time. And I think over, over time, our sound has kind of started swaying that way again, you know? And so um, I think my hope when this is all said and done is that we have a catalog of music that is just a total roller coaster that has gone from one place to another and keeps our listeners kind of evolving along with us, with our own ear, you know? And, Cause you know, music is music. I could care less what genre we're in or anything like that. I just, I, I think it's totally normal and it's healthy to, to change your ear over time and, and, yeah. and dive into newer things. And, um, and I hope that we continue to do that. And while also sticking to our, you know, our, a lot of our original foundation foundational sound, you know, I don't mean just like going off the wall and doing weird stuff, but like, um, it's good to kind of ebb and flow, I think. Absolutely. It, going back a little bit now uh, to, you know, childhood and stuff and how you got started in music. Uh, you grew up in Terrell Kaufman area. Did I say that right? Terrell? Yeah. 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 Um, between Terrell, da- Texas. Yeah. Between da- Dallas and Tyler. Um, and I read somewhere that your dad was a, uh, a kicker for Notre Dame and then the Chiefs. Is that? Yeah. 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 My, wow. my dad's side of the family, my uncles and my dad, my grandfather, they were all, a lot of them played uh, football for Notre Dame. And, uh, and my dad actually uh, played for the Kansas City Chiefs for like, I think like four or five games or something like that. And then, uh, and then he was accepted into law school. And I think he, was thinking he was going to get like dropped any, <laughs> any moment or whatever. And so yeah. he, I think he, and, and he also like my dad, he always wanted to be an attorney and, uh, and because that's what my grandfather it did as well. And, uh, and he, uh, I think kind of got out of all of that. And, and, uh, I, I, I've never really talked to him about like, if it was a decision that he was just like ready to get out of football or, if, or if it was a deal, like he thought he was going to get dropped or traded. And, and so he didn't want to deal with that and, and then went on, but yeah. I'm, I'm pretty positive. It was more leaning on the thing of, he just, he really did want to want to be an attorney. And uh, I think he always really looked up to my grandfather doing that and, and just yeah. knew, knew that line of work, like the back of his hand, like for defense, defense work. And now you did not, uh, grew up you you and your your siblings didn't grow up playing football right you were you were tennis players yeah yeah so with my dad i think also uh in that same light when when my oldest brother travis and and then other oldest brother connor when they were born i think my dad was just like absolutely not like yeah did not want us doing football because it's like i think he was at an age of maturity where he was seeing all of his friends like just you know really messed up and banged up and stuff coming out of that and and having you know you're starting to see all these like pro players like having early early deaths you know and uh it was before anyone really knew uh all you know everything behind that now i don't have the build of being a football player but my oldest brother travis i think he would have been a great football player and uh and connor actually he kicked uh as well uh for a little while but they were both incredible tennis players. And so my dad, like from an early age, got them playing. It's funny because it's like, you've got these small towns in Texas where nobody knows what tennis is or plays tennis, (laughs) but my dad, my mom and dad were familiar with it. Like, uh, 
back in college, they both like played for fun. Like even while he was at Notre Dame playing football, he and his buddies would play. And so at a very early point, they, I think just got my older brothers into it. And then obviously by the time I was born, I just, you know, you want to do what your older brothers do. And, and, uh, I kind of followed along in their footsteps, but I started way later than they did. I started when I was like in the probably sixth or seventh grade. Yeah. And, uh, I had a lot of catching up to do, you know, if I was going to play college and, um, and so I just, I worked crazy hard and, and, um, and tried to catch up and was fortunate enough to play college, but I didn't, I didn't play like division one or anything. That was, but, at, uh, was that at St. Edwards? I played division two at St. Edwards. Yeah. So we all three played at Tyler junior college, which was number one or number two in the country each year in, uh, in Junco, uh, for tennis. And I mean, when, when I say they were good, I mean, they were better, like my team in Tyler junior college probably would have beat my team at St. Edwards, like flat out. Like, no, yeah. I don't know that they would have gotten a single match, uh, off of my, my team at Tyler. And uh, our coach at Tyler Junior College, uh, John Peterson, if you look him up, I mean, he's just like, again, it's a small junior college in Tyler, Texas. But this guy retired with like, I think, 22 national championships and under his belt, wow. averaging, I think, one per year between the men's or women's team. Wow. And so once he built that program, it was like it was on and, yeah. and he was either winning or they were, or, or the team was getting second in, in nationals. And, uh, I mean, we would go and do dual matches against like Texas tech or A&M or, you know, I mean, they were like really good. And, uh, wow. And so it was really cool being a part of like that elite of a program for the first two years of college. And it made me super disciplined at, I was a much more disciplined version of myself then I feel like than I am now. And yeah. there's a lot that I need to look back on and reflect on to, to get back. Um, but yeah, it, it, me and all, and my other two older brothers all played under the same coach, John Peterson at Tyler for two years and then went on to other schools after that. And um, they went to Travis was at university of Hawaii and played for them. And then Connor played for university of Arkansas. And at, w at what point did you start getting into music then? Was that after you went to Austin to play D2? No, in, in high school, uh, I was getting into the music thing. And my cousin, my cousin Ross, that lived over in Athens, Texas, would uh, send me a lot of music like Pat Green and like Guy Clark and uh, even Adam Carroll. A lot of that stuff that I started listening to was because of him in high school. And my brother, Connor, also ended up learning how to play some guitar, like guitar chords and like one or two songs. He could play like nothing else matters by Metallica, the intro. And, and again, that little brother thing, I was like, Oh man, that's awesome. I want to figure that out. I want to learn how yeah. to do that too. And, and, yeah. uh, and so instinctively I saved up, went and bought a guitar and just started printing out chord sheets online and just figuring out how to, you know, how to play chord progressions and tabs to all this different stuff. And, uh, and yeah, it, it kind of, I started to realize by college though, my first like year in college, I was like, okay, I am definitely going to get away from the sport and start focusing more on the music because I was just like obsessed with it, at, at, you know, at, during that time. And, uh, and so I started, recording a lot of little demos at home on my, on my computer. Yeah. And, and then that went over into college and stuff. And then eventually I met Bob Gentry and that's where we, I recorded that first set of songs yeah. that I'd written that ended up being, I'll see the miles. And, uh, and, and then by the time I went to Austin, Texas for my junior and senior years at college, I pretty much just had a candid conversation with the coach. His name was uh, coach Stearns. And, um, essentially I just said like, look, man, I don't see myself like, I'm not going to go pro in the sport. I don't necessarily yeah. want to coach, yeah. um, anymore. And I, uh, I just kind of, I, I feel like I've got a shot at this if I really focus on it. And so for this last two years of school, can I, 
is there any way I can just like still make practice or whatever, but can I start trying to get shows and tour and not have my weekends eaten up through this? And, and essentially I just, that he was cool with it and yeah, it was, it was awesome. And he used to play music back in the day. He was a very laid back guy, just super chill guy. And, and he understood. And I think, uh, you know, I've, I, uh, haven't thought of it in a while, but I really, I mean, I appreciate that so much for him to have that kind of an insight on like, you know, if the, at the end of the day, like, you know, he like was totally not selfish with any of it. And just like, was like, if you feel like you got a shot at that, then you need to focus on it. And so that's what I did. And I was able to stay on the team or whatever and, um, you know, keep those friends and everything. But, um, was able to focus and, and, and play a lot of shows and, um, yeah, honestly, honestly probably drink too much, <laughs> and, right. you know, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, it just allowed me to dive in fully and, and get more familiar with music. And so what are those first few shows like? I mean, are, are you collaborating with other musicians right away? Um, are you doing the three and four hour cover sets? What's the first few gigs like? Yeah. So, uh, there was a couple guys that moved down to Austin with me that played, uh, in the band early on. And we kind of, um, we would play these random shows that like, you know, I found like a barbecue place in Colleen that we got to go play at. And then, uh, I won this singer songwriter contest with Bennett. I had met Bennett at this time. And so when I first moved to Austin, I'm automatically playing like every open mic night I can find. And I'm like, I've got a calendar right. of open mic nights written down for everywhere in Austin that I could find. And I would hit like three of them in one night sometimes. But I was trying to just get to know different musicians and just trying to play my music and was excited about those first, those early songs and just wanted to just wanted to kind of get my feet wet. I think I've subconsciously realized how behind the eight ball I was for my age, you know? And, and so I just tried really hard to dive in and, and, uh, then I, I, I had my own acoustic shows going on for a while, like a year or so. And then I met Bennett Brown or fiddle player. Yeah. He started playing in with me and then he and I opened for this other band. Then their band members ended up, playing in with us at shows and stuff and and so then we kind of started playing more as a band and uh we would do these random one-off gigs and eventually that led to us getting our first like residencies on sixth street like at shiner saloon yeah um downtown on uh like congress we would play whiskey wednesdays and that would be like a three-hour set from like you know 10 to one or something like that. Uh, every Wednesday and every Wednesday night. Yeah. yeah. And that would be like dollar whiskeys. Right. And, yeah. and so we're up there. It's an upstairs venue. You're loading in, setting up all your own sound, running your own sound, doing all of it. And then did that for a while. Also started playing the stage on six, which is like the stage on Broadway in Nashville. It's the yeah. same brand, same company. Yeah. Um, but they tried it out on sixth street and this guy named Brandon, uh, was running it. And, uh, anyways, we really got a lot of, uh, you know, playing time, show time there because we would do every like Tuesday and Thursday there. And so then even you become the band that they just call anytime someone cancels. And so right. there'd be weeks where we play the stage like four times in one week, but every show that we play there is a four hour set. If the band before us or after us canceled, we would just, yeah, let's play that too. And so then we're doing eight hour sets, you know? Wow. And so, and, and, and it just helped us, it helped us become, uh, it, it helped us to become a really strong live act right? like within about a year and a half of doing it. It was like, it was as if we had toured for 
a long time at that point, just because we had so many hours under our belt, standing on stage and trying out new things. And you, you know? guys were all available, right? If if you got a call on Tuesday and say we need you to play Tuesday night, the whole band was usually able to just just go do it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and we were all living pretty much. All of us were living in like a band house at the time together. Yeah. And and then you've got like the a couple of them are in school, but as long as it didn't co- conflict with school, they were there. And then it was like that type of a deal, you know. When did you start calling it Shane Smith and the Saints? Uh, there was a point in time early, early on that it was called Shane Smith and the Six Gun Saints. Okay. And <laughs> nice. it was like 2009, I think. And then, or 10 or something. Or maybe, no, maybe it was even later than that, like 11 or 12. But regardless, it was that. And then... I oddly enough ended up meeting Ray Wiley Hubbard and his wife, Judy Hubbard, that manages him and has for a long time. And Judy started managing us, you know, pretty much and tried to like just get our ducks in a row for us. And, and then Ray ended up kind of taking me under his wing and was like, Hey, like you're finger picking all wrong. Like you need to finger pick like this, like you're doing it all wrong. Like, so meet me at Saxon pub at one o'clock on Tuesday. And I'm going to just go through the same lesson that I got when I was your age uh, from so-and-so. And apparently that person got that same lesson from, uh, I thought it was Bob Dylan. Um, but it was like, it, it was like, I, th- I want to say it's called it's Travis picking where you plant your pinky yeah. finger and then your thumb is keeping the base, the right. base lines, and then the other three are doing their thing. But he literally drew out on a sheet of paper or like two or three sheets of paper. It was like three different exercises and it showed where every single finger went and every single action of each one. And he was like, you learn this. And then next week, you need to have this one down and whatever. And he taught me literally how to, and it's just hard to change your finger picking pattern when yeah. you've done it for years, a certain way. And I was playing with like three fingers essentially. And it was really difficult. Like I, you know, I, but I just sat there, maybe ADD enough. And I just sat there for hours and hours and hours and figured it out. And, um, and I, you know, I give him a lot of credit for, you know, because you, you end up writing songs differently when you finger pick differently. Yeah. Um, and when you play differently and, uh, it's super weird how that works, but all of a sudden you're writing stuff that is in, in a different vein. And, uh, the best example of that is the song. We were too young. If you listen to that song, like that's the exact finger picking pattern pretty much. And that was early on when I had just gotten that pattern down. And then I immediately, uh, had written that song, you know, within like six months or so, probably after learning that pattern. And then all of a sudden, all the, all the songs were kind of in that vein. And so anyways. So you're getting guitar lessons from Ray Wiley Hubbard and his wife is managing you. I mean, that's that's pretty neat. And, and now, I mean, you've got to yeah. pay it forward, right? You've got to teach someone else that finger picking pattern uh at stubs yeah. and tones or whatever someday dude i've, I've got to find the old papers because i have the yeah. old papers somewhere <laughs> and i don't know where they went and uh and i mean that's it's just one of those things like i have to find them and frame them and and then uh kind of almost reteach myself the how he taught me so that i can show other people as well you know yeah. um, but it was a very specific it was three different patterns and I don't remember exactly what the last, what the last one was other than the first like two, but, um, wow. anyways, eventually all the whole intention is just to give you muscle memory with all three. And then right. you end up combining all three over time. Like it's yeah. just, you're comfortable enough with all three of them to where it's like, all of a sudden you'll start doing this other thing, you know, and it just kind of ebbs and flows a little bit. So that's got to feel pretty good and uh, to be, he he sees something in you where he's like, I'm going to take you under my wing. I'm going to show you how this all works because you've got something. I, I mean, I don't know. It, it, he was super kind to do it. Um, yeah. And he was, I mean, he's literally like a legend to me. And, and yeah. uh, 
you know, I just, I respect him so much. I know how long he's been doing it and, uh, and he's still willing to, you know, load up in a van, go, go work his butt off, get paid, go home and, and be home with his family, you know? And, um, I just respect that a lot. I know how much discipline that takes and, and perseverance that takes to stay at it for as long as he has and still, um, remain humble and still remain just kind. Um, a lot of people become super calloused up by doing that. And, uh, I can't say that about him, which is a, you know, it's an awesome thing. So you guys start putting out your own records as Shane Smith and the Saints. Uh, Coast comes out January of 2013. And how old are you at this point? Oh, no. I, have no, I don't know how old I am right now. Uh, <laughs> I, at the time, I would have been 13, 23. Okay. Right. And, okay. I would have been 23. So... You, that's the. I mean, it's been all. I guess about exactly ten years since that first record it came out. Yeah, and, or twenty four, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So when when Coast comes out, are you guys still playing on Sixth Street all the time, or are you really starting to get out and tour a bunch? Yeah, we were still playing on Sixth Street, and we but we were also starting to tour and starting to get out. Um, uh, I remember that CD release in twenty thirteen was actually at Stubbs indoors. And that was the first, like, that was a pretty cool thing because I think we sold that out and it was just a cool feeling just like being like, hell yeah, we could, we can sell out stubs in indoors, you know, yeah. <laughs> holds probably 150 people or something, but like, it was a cool, really cool moment for us. Um, I don't know how many people it holds actually, it might hold a decent amount more than that, but Regardless, it was a cool moment. We were also playing Rattle In, which was owned by Ray Benson at the yeah. time. And it's shut down now. But uh, talk about just an awesome bar, like, to have early shows with actual fans, like, finally starting to come out. Because we would sell out that place pretty regularly. And, and dude, those shows were just a total dumpster fire. I mean, there was so yeah. much fun. And, and everyone is just sardines packed in there. Um and, and so, yeah, that, that's still what was going on around that time though, in 2013. And then, um, we ended up started around that time as well, like in 2012 or 11, me and my buddy Cody Bass had really, we started listening to, uh, the Turnpike Troubadours, which no one knew who they were at the time. And, uh, this guy, uh, Chris Mosier who used to work for KVET, I believe in Austin, uh, the radio station, 98.1 KVET, I believe. And uh, Chris Moser would do this like Sunday night show, this radio show where he would play like bands that he was really digging on and that were up and coming. And I heard uh, that first Turnpike Troubadour song. I think it was Every Girl uh, was the first one that they pushed to radio. Yeah. And when I heard it, I was like, oh, my God, this, you know, the writing in this is so solid. Uh, this sounds way different than a lot of the other stuff I've listened to and, and we've listened to. And so, I mean, we had a ton of respect for them. And so I immediately started just like calling, calling like the venues that they were playing. And I would call their agent, John Folk at Red 11. Also, <laughs> I'd be like, hey, dude, like what shows? can we open like we just want to play some shows with you guys like we freaking love your music and uh and i feel like you know y'all's fans might like our music and it, it it ties pretty well and and so we just started uh we went over and played one show with them in college station on like a thursday or wednesday or something and it was at this tiny bar called shotsies yeah uh, and and it's just so funny to think back because it's like I mean, that was, and they were like in this van with like, I think they called it the honeysuckle rose, but it was like this like brown mustard, I don't know, just earth tones that weren't appealing <laughs> yeah. on this van. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, they were, they were in, in over the course of like nine months, we played so many shows with them and we went from 
playing like the small room at Georgia's Majestic in Fayetteville, like the very small front room of that yeah. with them, all the way to uh, seeing them sell out like every show. And it would be over a thousand people or 1500 people, but it was like nine months. And it was just, it was like that in every show. And then over time, uh, we would still do shows with them, but not as often. And, uh, and, uh, we weren't on that Nashville roster at red 11. We were on the Austin roster. And I started to find that if you're on the Austin one, you do shows with the Austin bands. If you're on the Nashville one, you would do shows with the Nashville. At least that's how it was at the time. Yeah. And so we definitely saw that, you know, that started happening. We didn't play hardly any shows with them after that. And then, uh, um, but that's what, that was our first opportunity getting out of state and, and through those guys early on, we went to Arkansas, Missouri, Kansas, and Oklahoma, Oklahoma being the biggest, strongest one. Cause Oklahoma city, we started, that was like our first fan base, honestly, like outside of Texas, that was the first base of people that were like, Oh my gosh, maybe we can do this like maybe we can make fans outside of texas yeah and be an actual touring act like outside of the state and it was the the people in oklahoma they and it was mustang brewing company that doesn't exist anymore but tim and carmen Sholin, uh at the time owned mustang brewing company and they sponsored turnpike troubadours and so all the mustang brewing company events we became buddies with them so they would put us on these shows with turnpike and then they would book try to get us booked on these festivals in oklahoma that they were sponsoring they just helped a lot and all of a sudden before you know it we're going to wormy dog and selling a couple hundred tickets at wormy dog up at in oklahoma city and so it was like oh wow this is this is cool you know and and that's kind of how it over time started escalating so it was one market at a time, right? You, I mean, at first, right? Where you in you a way, one market, yeah, in a way, yeah. At, at least, like, you know, we were still doing the the stuff in Texas a lot, but then we started, you know, Oklahoma started to be a honey hole, and then like all of a sudden Tulsa was, and Stillwater was, and we would go play like Eskimo Joe's and Stillwater, like in the entrance of the restaurant like right there in that front room and set up all of our equipment. You're just like in a restaurant playing full band. And, uh, and then all of a sudden Oklahoma, there started being a lot of dots connected in Oklahoma and, and yeah. word getting out. And, and then on top of that, we, we, we got with red 11, that booking agency, they're putting us in all these, you know, Texas festivals and red dirt, like events barbecue events and things like that and and they helped us get just gigs you know not the greatest gigs but they got they kept us busy you know and that was very i think important i wanted to uh, touch on one other thing before we run out of time uh covid happened in 2020 which shut everything down you guys were touring your asses off through 2019 Mm -hmm. um and it seemed like you, you figured out things to do. You know, you were on social media, you were making a lot of merchandise and fans were taking care of you. Um, now that you're able to tour again, and uh, I mean, how do you want to be playing as many shows as you were playing in 2018, 2019? Is there a happy medium uh, making money at home versus going out on the road? Yeah, 100%. There's like, there's a lot of silver linings, I think, with, the whole COVID years. Um, that was the first time as an adult that I was ever home. And yeah. it was like, you know, it was like the coolest feeling ever. And it was like, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys that is very like, I can be heads down and just keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward. And, and it's to my own detriment, you know, to the extent that I can be like that. And yeah, that, forced me to just stop in my tracks and and everybody it forced everyone to stop in their tracks but me individually speaking on behalf of myself it forced me to stop in my tracks and 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 just be at home and find a way to make it work while being at home and and so you know 
and and all of a sudden I I could go to uh, I, I could go hang out with my brothers on a weekend night. You know, I could be with my wife on a date. You know, and like all this stuff and. And so it just gave me this huge perspective of like, no, this is what I want. At the end of the day, this is way more important to me than anything. And I need to find a way to make, I already had plans of trying to cut back on our touring that year, actually, as odd as it is. Yeah. I had these plans of like, we're going to dip down and we're going to do a hundred shows a year yeah, or something like that. And I right. was like adamant, like we're going to do a hundred shows a year. And and then over time, maybe we can get to 75 shows a year or something like that. But if we can make right. this much money on average, this much on merch, whatever, we can dip down. Everyone, I can keep paying the guys' salaries and we can make it work if, if this happens. And then all of a sudden, it was like COVID happened. And I don't know, like as much as I want to say, like, yeah, that was my plan was to cut back. I also know how hard of a time I have saying no to like, opportunities yeah, and how hardwired I am to just saying yes to, to stuff like that because I'm, you know, being so afraid of it not panning out or whatever. And, and, uh, and so I will say that COVID like forced me to, it was like immediately like, yeah, not only are you going to do a hundred shows, you're actually going to do like way less than that and yeah. you have no option. Yeah. And so it's like, oh crap, you know, like this is actually going down. I have to execute on this. And, and so I, you know, me and my wife immediately go to the drawing board on like, how, how can we make this work? And we had also at the time just signed with 7S management out of Denver. Right. And, uh, with Brian, uh, Schwartz. And, and so uh, immediately we're all navigating this like everyone else. And, and we started doing these live stream shows, me and Bennett would, and just play some music for the people. And it's insane because it was like, you would put like a digital tip jar, not expecting much out of it. And then before you know it, you've got like 200,000 people watching. Yeah. Sometimes like some of these live streams would be wow. streamed like over 200,000 times or something. And wow. so then it's all of a sudden like a dollar here and there all of a sudden is like enough for us to keep everyone on salary. Literally not a single one of my guys lost a paycheck all during COVID. Wow. The entire time. And so I don't know how many people could say that, but like, I'm super proud to be able to say that, you know, and, and yeah. not for myself, but just our whole, our team, you know? And, yeah. um, and, uh, anyway, so yeah, it we we got creative and started doing these live stream things and and just uh, and and started pushing all these random merch things like it would be like so dumb but like there would be like the Tiger King thing came out yeah, and so then yeah. we did like a Shane's Exotic Zoo like whatever yeah. it, with like a tiger stripe on it and like we would do these dumb shirt ideas but everyone thought it was hilarious and they would like sell out in like a day or something when we would do them. And so then I also thought this was really cool is our fans, even before we started doing the different designs, our fans immediately in the first month of COVID, uh, we hit like the record number of our merch sales that first month of COVID by like four X what we wow. had ever done before. Yeah. And I think, and from what I've understood over time is like, and hearing feedback from these fans, everyone was so scared we were going to break up. And so a lot of these fans that were our diehards were just buying merch constantly trying to get us some kind of like, you know, uh, support to keep, to keep at it. That says a lot about and your so, fans. Dude, a hundred percent. It's, it's amazing. And, and, uh, and so anyways, it's, uh, I don't know, the, the COVID stuff was, was wild. Uh, but I'm also, I will say this, I'm very thing, and I don't care where people are politically, what I like stay out of that stuff. Um, I, I really feel like I'm pretty much like down the middle. And, uh, if anybody has a conversation with anyone, I think most people are down the middle on this stuff, right. but I will say like, I'm extremely grateful with the way that our state handled 
uh, some things for COVID. Yeah. You know, other things, whatever. I don't know, but yeah. I'm personally very thankful for the way that they we continued to have the opportunity to work as long right. as we were being careful. Yeah. And and that is logical to me. If you're careful, right. you should be allowed to make a living for your family, put food on the table and at, you know, I mean do what you have to do to survive. Right. And so many other states ran all these bands into the ground, all these restaurants into the ground, all these gyms, these people had saved yeah. up their life savings to try to start a gym or start a restaurant. And they were just forced to like, there was no compensation for their, the rent they were paying. There was no compensation for the loans that they had. Like it, I, I think it's just total bullshit the way that a lot of States operated during that time. And I'm like, I, I just feel so bad for all these bands. Like, cause we were buddies with a lot of these guys that had great, great sounds and great bands, and they just couldn't make it because yeah. no one was letting them work. Yeah. It was like, if you, if you went and, and played at some barbecue restaurant in a five acre field and there's tables spread out everywhere, you were like demonized for doing that. And it's like, dude, I mean like that's as you're being as careful as you can. These right. people realize the risk that they're taking showing up here. Let's talk about that for a second. Like right. if they're willing to risk it, what the hell are we talking about? You know, it's like people are just at the end of the day trying to stay sane and trying to put food on the table. Sure. That's yeah. it. No one's trying to do anything wrong here. And I feel like the people that were punished for that are, they are owed an apology. Uh, a lot of people that were not just allowed to survive during that time in a lot of these other states. And I will say like, as much as people want to hate on the state of Texas and the politics of Texas, I am, I am like 100% proud uh, to say that our elected officials allowed us to work during that time, as long as we were being safe. And yeah. And so, you know, I think that's the only reason we're still a, a band right now. Uh, that's one of the main reasons is because we were able to keep doing a show here and there just to, keep it together you know right right keep and, everybody uh, follow your protocol but but still able to go out and do the thing yeah and i don't mean being like reckless it's like obviously there were places yeah. where people were being reckless and and you would show up to a venue they would say that it was going to be outdoors and it was all going to be spaced out and and you would get there and that wouldn't be the case and so then you're right. putting an awkward spot of like kind of telling the venue like hey like look we appreciate your business but like you've got to fix this you know we can't right. th this is even aside from whether we're willing to do it, it get health out of the picture like totally aside from that this is a terrible look what you guys are doing <laughs> you know it's like right right or you know someone were to take a photo of this you guys would be on like you know you could get in trouble doing this like y'all need to get your shit together <laughs> yeah right right and so um you know we ran into that a lot but um it is what it is it's like you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta work with it and, uh, and, and make it, make it happen uh, the best way you can. Do you see yourself doing anything outside of the saints musically in the future, whether, whether it be like producing for another artist or, uh, you know, solo record, do you have any of that kind of stuff on your mind ever? Man, absolutely. I'm, I'm actually, uh, we've, we've got plans right now with, uh, with building our own uh, studio and I'm extremely excited about that. And, um, I think creatively it's just going to be a, just a game changer for me, for the guys, everything, having this space to be able to like go in, collaborate together, even like Dustin, our lead guitarist, you know, he's got his side project that he does and he writes having a space for him to just come and not have to pay for anything, but like work on his own stuff as well. And, and me work on stuff on the side that I don't necessarily think I would ever release with, with the saints and, and under our current uh, band. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I've written that like, I'm like, man, I could see this being like just a total hit for like even a band like Matt and Kim or, or MGMT right. <laughs> yeah. or like it, like, I mean, I've written totally stuff different. It's like, 
totally different and it's in that wheelhouse. Yeah. But our fans don't listen to that and and that's fine, you know, but I I also like it's too big of a departure I think to throw out under our band, but I would yeah. also still love to have the option of doing it under my own name or something else just to just throw it out there. I mean, it's it's cool and a lot of other people would be into it and um and I think having like a studio space like that is going to create those opportunities to make that a reality. Yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if you don't mind, stay on the line with me for just a second. But in front of our audience, I want to thank you so much for uh, for your time. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, man. No, thank you. And uh, it's it's been a good talk. And, and, and thanks again for opening the show and doing all that back in Denver. It's it's uh, it was it was cool getting to catch up with you again. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. All right. Shane, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. You're a busy dude. Um, Thanks for catching up with me. And thank you to all of you for listening to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I'll chat with you next week. I'm your host, Andy Sido. (laughs) ¶¶